This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libriideaslibrary.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. Yeah, why don't we just pray as we begin? Allow me to pray. Lord, thank you that we can be here this evening on this beautiful evening and thank you that we can think about um, human creativity and the, the beauty and the wonder of our ability to to think and create and imagine and enjoy stories and language thank you for these gifts that you've given us um, help me as I speak now to speak about them uh, well and does some to do some measure of justice to them. Um, yeah, be with us all as we think about these things, Lord, um, as we think about the, the culture around us and the, um, the questions and the accusations being brought um, against, against in, in some ways, our, our heritage, Lord. Help us to think through these things carefully and um, well. <coughs> Amen. So this lecture, okay, the, quest, the title is obviously a little bit provocative, um, but I, I'm wanting to basically, I, I'll sort of give it away right now, I'm wanting to really invite you to engage with, with the classics, with the great texts of our, of our culture and of any culture, um, but they are no longer... Um, <coughs> maybe esteemed in the way that they once were. They're no long, it's no longer as, as simple and straightforward a thing um, to enjoy them in a sense. Um, and the title is, yeah, it's, it's a little bit playful. Aren't they all just dead white males? I read the classics. Um, I, I don't mean to be flippant with the title or dismissive of uh, people's concerns about, about texts from the past and about texts written by men from the past. Um, or to say that there's nothing to be, um, to be thought through here, um, or to be flippant about these things. But um, this, this notion of um, dead white males, in a sense, continuing to oppress us from beyond the grave um, is something that I'm interested in. I think it's an interesting idea, and I'm interested to think about it. And my, my field, really, my sort of scholarly field originally was at university, was the, the Greek and Roman classics, the, te the ancient texts of ancient Greece and Rome. I studied Latin and Greek <coughs> at the University of Sydney. Um, and I do have a fondness for the classics more broadly as well. And so <coughs> I wanted to think through some of the objections that are being raised to the classics. Um, and, and also invite you into them as well at the same time. So <coughs> please, uh, please come with me here. Um, 
Firstly, I want to start by just talking about what is a classic. Um, a classic has, there's, there's a number of objective criteria traditionally associated with, it, with the classic. Um, they, the first lists of, of sort of the best, what are the best books that we should preserve, go back to the Alexandrian scholars in Egypt um, in the Hellenistic period. So this is after the sort of high point of Athens and Sparta. Um, the Macedonians, Alexander the Great, has taken over the Greek world and indeed the known world almost. Um, and so there, that did mean though there was a lot of stability and interconnection and sharing of what they had. And vast libraries were assembled at that time. So we're talking sort of 200 BC, round about there, 150, 200 BC, um, just before the Romans take over. Um, and there are a number of Greek scholars in Alexandria, in Egypt, who, um, who drew up lists of, they, they edited the texts that they had from Homer down to their time. They edited them, they wrote commentaries on them, there's vast ancient commentaries we have on these texts, just like there would later be biblical commentaries. Um, in fact, there were probably already commentaries on the Old Testament at that time too. Um, and um, you've got to remember that writing at that time was very laborious and books were um, precious and fragile and they, they wanted to be selective you know, in this vast array. What are the best? They wanted to know what are the best ones in each genre? What are the best epics that we should really make sure we prioritize preserving? What are the best histories? What are the best lyric poetry, etc.? So they drew up these lists of the ones that they thought were the best. It was partly because they were interested in that sort of thing. They were interested in classifying and excellence, and they were interested in knowing what was best and what was worse. That's a very Greek preoccupation. But there was also just simply a practical element to it of we... It's laborious and expensive to make these things. Um, what should we prioritize and make sure we really keep um, copying? So that was how it began. And the, the, the word, they didn't use the word canon or classics. They used the word, uh, they used this phrase, it means sort of the included, the ones that are admitted or included as the best. The Romans came along later and they used the word classicus or classici, which is really a social political term meaning the best, the most excellent people originally. So... The first objective is really excellence, superiority excellence. That's the first criterion, um, objectively. The idea that what are the texts that are particularly excellent in form, in content, in expression? <clears throat> uh, another one is that they are enduring, timeless and timely. Um, I think Ben Johnson said about Shakespeare that he wasn't just for our time, but for all time. Um, he recognized in his contemporary Shakespeare this transcendent nature, this enduring nature. <clears throat> so this would be one of the, one of the normal criteria we would, <clears throat> we would use when we're trying to decide what a classic might be. Um, <clears throat> now, I understand that there are certain criticisms to the idea of classics at all. So, and I'm going to go into that in a little bit. But for now, I'm just looking at what traditionally would we, would we say about what makes a classic a classic? What does it have to, what does it take to get into that group of admitted, <coughs> included texts? So it needs to be, well, often they will tend to be enduring over time. Sometimes a classic will be recognized as a classic very quickly, so it's not the only criterion, but, but it is a significant <coughs> one. They will tend to stand the test of time. 
Um, they will tend to be lasting and they will tend to speak both to their own time when they were written, but also they'll speak to each age in the, uh, later. And even as the cultural milieu changes and even as a whole bunch of things change, the world that we inhabit may look very different in some ways. But, but a classic will typically still speak into our time, even though it's from a foreign time and place often. So they're both timeless and always timely in whatever time you happen to be in. They'll also be influential within and across successive cultures. So they'll exert influence within their own culture in which they were first produced. And then they'll also, like I was saying, influence across time. Um, even cultures that, that speak a different language um, and have a completely different view of the world will often still be influenced in some way. <coughs> um, they're inexhaustible. Uh, so what I mean by this is, that, is they, they continue to speak afresh throughout an individual's lifetime. So if you read um, a great book, if I can use that term, um, and you read it when you're 20, and then maybe you read it when you're 30, and then maybe you read it again when you're 50, if you were to do that, you may well find that it speaks afresh to you each time. As you've lived more of life, as you've gone through certain experiences, you'll find, oh, I never, I, I never saw that. It, it spoke to me back when I was 20 here. I was at this place in life and it spoke to that. Oh, now I'm 40 and wow, it's, there's more. There's more than I realized the first time. There's, there's always more. So there's that sense of they're, they're inexhaustible. And that goes for an individual, but also, as I've been saying, across cultures themselves. Later cultures will see things. So we have, for example, we now read, read the ancient classics and we, we see things in them uh, maybe that medieval people didn't see. They saw certain things and we come to it with our eyes and we see other things. There's a lot of depth there, right? Um, they're multifaceted and complex. Okay, they're rich, they're dense. Um, you could say sort of thick as opposed to thin. I don't mean thick as in, as in um, unintelligent, but thick in the sense of there's a richness, there's a depth. You can really get into them. You can sink your teeth in them. They're not just thin and superficial. <clears throat> uh, and they'll, they'll, they, they will contain uh, universal truths about human beings and about life um, embodied in the particulars of a story. So they'll depict really that stories, literature is really the aim of literature is to depict human experience. To, to take the reader or the listener transport them into human experience. Um, and so the classics will, will do that. Um, and in doing so, they'll, they'll normally be, they'll be touching on or, or bringing us things that are often true, that we find are true across cultures and across individuals. But in, so there's these universals, but they're embodied in the particulars of a story. So it's like life. You know, it's universals and particulars coming together. But obviously, this is, this is an idea that's being challenged, the idea that anything can do this, that there is any universal truth and that therefore anything can express universal truth is not a given anymore in our culture. But this is, this is how classics are being understood uh, and those who still advocate for them would, would argue for this, right, as I am doing. And so as part of this, they'll often have archetypes They'll have, they'll have um, typical characters. You know, they might have the, the trickster character. That's an archetype. That's sort of deceitful, cunning, 
um, tricks. You'll see them in fairy tales, you'll see them in novels, you'll see them in plays. Um, then you, know, you might have the, the just ruler, that might be an archetype. Um, the, then you've got archetypical things like the, the father-son relationship. You know, there's conflict, but there's also mentoring. and So, so they're, they're archetypical, they're things that, patterns of behaviour and personalities, characters that we recognise from life and from other stories. <clears throat> I have one subjective criterion as well as objective, and it's, it, it needs to be said that the classics, are, that there's a lot of subjectivity to them as well. I, I'm not arguing that they're only objective and the whole thing's purely objective. I think you can all, we can all have our slightly different lists of, of what we would see as our classics. There's, there's a place for that too. You may have, I'd be really interested to know if you have more insights and you have more subjective criteria. This is the one I came up with. Um, that they're moving, they're deeply affecting to the reader. And, and they'll often be a, a landmark experience, intellectually, emotionally, spiritually. You'll often remember when you read or s saw a certain film, or, you know, really, wow, you know, you remember that. It was, it was a, a big moment in your life sometimes. Um, you know, not always, but this is also, I think, an important um, criterion to me as well, subjective. And there may well be more. I, I, I only have one, but that's not to say there might not be more. So I, I'd be interested in if you have more to add to that later. Um, what do I mean when I talk about the classics for this purposes of this lecture? I'm focusing on Western classics. It's my cultural inheritance um, as a a white Australian, you could say, as a you know Australian of European descent, it's it, that Western culture is my my culture. Um, it's what I know, um, but yeah, I'm I'm interested in other cultures' classics as well. I, I think they're universal around all all civilizations and cultures have them. I don't think they're unique to the West, um, but the Western ones, the ones I know and love, and I'm inviting you to. But it's not to say the others are not important. And also my focus is literary. Um, there are classics in every field, as well as every culture. I'm focusing on Western and literary ones. Again, it's what I know, and also it's just one lecture. We can't, but there's scientific classics. There's, um, you know, classics in, in, in different fields. <clears throat> there are classics of um, military theory. You know, think of a, what's the Chinese? I forget his name. The Sun Tzu? The Art of War, is it Sun Tzu, The Art of War, the Chinese writer? That would be a classic, recognised as a classic across the world in terms of um, military thinking. But I'm focusing on li literary. Um, so, and, and I'm focusing on a big span. So I'm not just talking about Greek and Roman classics. Um, I'm talking about them in the broadest possible sense, really. Um, so, you know, this is a cheesy, alliterative thing that I came up with. But, you know, Homer, Harry Potter, via Herbert, so... You know, this, this is 800 BC, this is now, and this is um, 400 years ago. I, I'm, I'm just, just saying it's, it's broad, um, time-wise. The Bible, I would consider the Bible to be, to be a classic, um, amongst other things. It is a literary classic, I would argue, and you know, all the way through to Marilyn Robinson. She's a, a living author now, whom I haven't read, but again, this is part of the way classics works. There's a consensus um, even if you haven't read it yourself, you can, you can, it's good, it's better to read it yourself, but you can also, um, if you haven't read it, trust what, what the consensus is around you. And um, 
from what I've heard, from what people have told me, I would, I would suggest Marilyn Robinson is, is a classic, already a classic author. <clears throat> what are some of the things that make the classics seem difficult to us? So I want to talk about some of the barriers. Um, what makes them difficult off-putting? Um, the first thing is I think they can be intimidating. Uh, they are big often, they, they're long, we think of them that way. They're not all really long, but so many of them are, I guess. Um, and there's something off-putting about that. It's like, you know, you look at a really huge mountain, you think, well, that's, I'd love to climb that, but I don't know if I'd make it. You know, it's a bit intimidating. Um, so I, I think this can be a barrier to us approaching them. It's like, oh, I've never read one, or it's not really my thing, or, you know, I... I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't be able to understand it. Um, we, we, we can talk ourselves out of it, even if we're, we're interested. Um, but I would say, in terms of this, this possible barrier, I would just suggest not, not all the classics are equally dense, long, or difficult. You can, I would recommend, if you're not used to them and you are feeling intimidated, you can start in a suitable place for you. Um, for example, you don't have to, the first classic novel you read doesn't have to be War and Peace or Brothers Karamazov or you know, Our Mutual Friend by Charles Dickens. You know, these are long books. You could read something like The Red Badge of Courage, which is an American classic about the American Civil War, and that's probably like 150 pages, maybe 200 at the most. Um, in fact, I'm probably even, no, it's probably even just 100, 150. It's quite short and really worth reading. So you don't have to start with something really big. Also, um, I sometimes find listening can, be, can help as opposed to trying to read it. So you, there's a lot of audiobooks now. It's never been better time to listen to books. Um, on the internet, there's Audible, there's all these other sites. Even just YouTube, you'll often find people um, reading them. There's, there's, yeah, we, I, I can tell you places to go for that if you're interested later. But, or having someone read to you. I'd also say the more time you spend with them, the less intimidating they become. So, um, as with all um, excellent things, it helps to also be initiated into them by someone else. So, it's good if you can get someone to, to help you um, come, into that, come into it. So, you, reading it and discussing it with other people, maybe someone who already knows, who's read it before, or who's just willing to go on the journey with you, that helps a lot too. Um, but I would say the more time you spend with them, the less intimidating they become most of the time, normally. Uh, okay, the other thing is they can, be, they can seem quite boring or alien. So, um, you know, they can be dense. Uh, they can be dry. If you read the Iliad, there's this book. Pretty much a whole book of the Iliad is just devoted. It just lists all the ships. It just lists all the ships and armies and for all the Greek city-states. You know, it's a little bit like in the Old Testament, we get to those genealogies that are really long genealogies. They can be a bit dry. They can, it's, you can struggle to be engaged with them. Um, this, is, this, this is part of it. Um, they, you know, this can be quite off-putting. Or the language is old. Um, the English language has changed through the centuries, so maybe, you're, you, maybe it's an old text and you just find the language confusing. Um, and I would say, in this regard, um, it's, worth, it's worth persevering a little bit. It's, wor it's worth pushing into a little bit. And I would say that classic texts, great texts, they demand a lot of us, but they also give a lot back to us. Okay, so they're the most demanding, but they're also the most rewarding. So it's, it's worth it if you can, if 
you can find ways to keep to keep going. And also, um, yeah, it does get easier if you read um, Shakespeare's language enough. And it might be there might be different thresh, thresholds for different people, and that's fine. But you might find the more you read Shakespeare's English or hear it, the more you start to understand it, the more it starts to make sense. And you think, oh, once one before when I read that that part, I would have had no idea what that meant. And now I can now actually it's fairly clear to me because I've you've immersed yourself in that in that language for a while. They're an acquired taste, uh, like I said before, they they require initiation. But they are open and accessible to anyone who can read or listen. No one's, um, despite some calls to cancel the classics, they're still widely available. So in that sense, no one is keeping you from them. Um, and many good things, many worthwhile things, are an acquired taste um, and do require um, some perseverance and some initiation. It's, it's, a, it's a life principle. Um, and yeah, we, we need help, I think, to get come into the world of great literature, but it's worth it. It's worth it. Um, the other, the, the objection, which is kind of the main objection in a way that I was thinking about, is that they're offensive or even oppressive. And this is a re more of an, a recent objection, I guess, more of a 20th century objection, more or less, 21st century. Um, but this is the idea that they are really, um, I guess, at at best unhelpful and at, and at worst some sort of force for evil. Some, that they, it's the idea that the classics perpetuate inequality and injustice. They perpetuate, um, you know, uh, prejudice maybe. Uh, maybe they perpetuate unjust societal structures. Maybe they perpetuate racial or gender relationships that are um, destructive and oppressive, for example. And I just want to spend a bit of time now with this objection and talk about why the classics are being cancelled by some people. Some people are attempting to, in a sense, cancel them because of this idea that they're oppressive and a force for evil. Um, what is the shape of our cultural moment in regard to the classics? Well, this is one example here. Um, now, that this is from an article which was not very charitable to the person wanting to cancel the Odyssey, but it just gives you a sense of what's going on. It gives you a sense of the discussion that's happening. It's kind of humorous, actually. I kind of enjoyed the humor of it. Um, but like I said, it's, it's a little bit dismissive too. And I don't want to say there are no causes for concern reading classics or no, um, that these objections have no grains of truth in them at all. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. But this is an example. So in December, I'm sorry, I don't know which year. Well, 2021, there you go. So December 2020, a Massachusetts ninth grade English teacher proclaimed on Twitter that she was very proud to say we got the Odyssey removed from the curriculum this year. Um, I wrote my honours thesis at the university on the Odyssey. So there's a bit of an Odyssey theme through this lecture. Okay, so this is the first first Odyssey reference. <clears throat> she said, and then the, the person writing the article says the Odyssey, a masterwork written 28 centuries ago was not fully aligned with the teacher's contemporary moral compass. Rather, she felt that the Odyssey was spreading sexism, racism, ableism, and Western centrism. And the person adds, of course, the Odyssey was written in the Bronze Age, a couple of millennia before the concept of Westernism even existed. So they're already moving into this idea of context and um, <coughs> something is something allowed to be from long ago? Is that okay? Um, so it's, it's a pretty dismissive take on this teacher. 
Um, but I just wanted to show it as a, we don't have to be so dismissive, but it, it gives you a sense of the, some of the discussion that's happening and some of the accusations that are being brought against um, these texts. So for example here, the Odyssey is spreading sexism, racism. Um, another one here is hashtag disrupt texts finds that Shakespeare's plays harbour problematic depictions and characterizations, persist in indoctrinating students into a false notion of the primacy and superiority of the English language, include violence, misogyny, racism, and ultimately promote white supremacy and colonization, and therefore must be excluded from curriculums. Again, it's, it might sound extreme or it might sound normal to you, depending on your, on your context. Um, that's a lot, there's a lot there to respond to, and those are not all the same, necessarily. Those objections are not all just the same thing. So it, it's, this is being presented as a bit of a bundle. Um, and again, I, I would want to say that I wouldn't argue that, that there's, this is just completely um, false. I think there are, there are ways in which this, this could be true, to, at least to some extent. Um, but you, know, you need to think through these accusations and, and think of, look at Shakespeare and you know, think about, there's a number of things to think through. But this is just another example to show you what some of the accusations are. <clears throat> I'm interested in terms like indoctrinating students because um, it's one thing to harbour a problematic depiction. It's another thing to persist in indoctrinating, for example. Um, including violence and misogyny, racism, is different to ultimately promoting certain things. So you can see how there's, there's so much there. It, it, it's a little bit clumsy, but that's interesting too just to see. This is why I'm saying there's a lot to unpack there. Um, you know, promoting something is different to just having it depicted, right? <clears throat> but so now I want to move into how, how we might respond to some of this. So how I might respond as someone that actually thinks the classics are worthwhile and are really good, and I, I'm, I'm encouraging you to them. What, what do I think of some of these accusations? Um, well, the first thing, thing is I would say I, I would allow for complexity. Um, uh, and what I mean by that is, I think it's important not to, in thinking through these, these accusations, not to give in to reductionism. So, for example, a, a reductionism that our culture is really fixated on right now is reducing everything to power. Every, reducing everything to power plays and power dynamics and power relations. So, all human relationships just come down to power. This is a, a sort of, a, yeah, this is a strong prevalent idea in our culture right now. And I would say that that is reductionistic, that that, that is not without um, due consideration, but it's not everything. It's not, I don't think it's the only basis on which we, we relate. There's also love and there's also sacrifice. There's also you know, there's other things going on um, besides only power. And so I would say, you know, life is complex and, and messy. For example, the Iliad contains violence, exploitation, um, and this is aside from whether you even think it's promoting certain things or not. It just depicts there is violence and exploitation that occurs in it for sure. Um, but there's also love and compassion and, and grief. Some of the most amazing depictions of human grieving that you could ever read. Um, and really some incredible scenes of reconciliation even at the end. 
So depicting, promoting, that's even leaving that aside, just the fact that it has both um, is, is complex. And should we dismiss it because there's some things in it that aren't good? Um, and then we lose out on the things in it that are beautiful. And so, and it's interesting that the accusations against these texts, they seem quite, um, they're quite simplistic to me in the sense that it's only promoting apparently the bad things. There's no talk, well, it's promoting, you know, it, I actually think it's, it's, I'm not convinced it's promoting anything. Um, but even if you think it is promoting certain things, you'd have to admit sure it's promoting good things as well, but that seems to get lost. Um, I would also say, just as a note, on the Greek and Roman classics, during the Enlightenment, there's an interesting thing that happened during the Enlightenment where the study of Greece and Rome gave Europe its new secular origin story. So there was this new story that came up in the Enlightenment that actually everything good about us is from the Greece and Rome and it's nasty, oppressive, superstitious Christianity that's kept us, it's kept oppressing us, um, chained, keeping us chained. And now that we've broken out of it, we can reclaim our good heritage in, in the classics. And so the Greek and Roman classics were used to justify in the Enlightenment some hierarchies of culture and race. They would appeal to Aristotle and Plato for example, to argue that certain races were superior to others or that certain social classes were superior to, inferior to others. Um, but they were also appealed to as sources of freedom and justice. So Pericles, Athens was held up. Um, I would argue that actually um, this Enlightenment story is, uh, is, is quite problematic and, and mistaken. And I did a lecture when did I give it a term or two last term? Did I give it last term on what has Christianity ever done for us? Where I was talking about, about this in more detail. So I'm not going to go into it too much now. But I would say it's actually the Bible that gives us universal human dignity and value, not the pagan classic. So the Bible has this radical idea of everyone made in the image of God. Jesus died on the cross for everyone. Paul talks about you know, there's no Jew or Greek, male, female, slave or free. That the gospel transcends all these groups and divisions and hierarchies. The classics doesn't give us that kind of, the pagan classics don't give us that kind of universal human value at all. Um, but both the pagan classics and the Bible have been used different times to support and justify many different viewpoints and agendas through the ages. So both pagan and Christian works have been used to justify slavery or to oppose slavery. To so they can be used, they're complex texts. They can be used to do different things and they have been used to do different things. Um, I'm just saying, let's allow for some of that complexity. <clears throat> Pleading for that. Um, Mary Beard, who's a classics professor, Roman historian at Cambridge, she has some, some programs on television in England. You might have seen them on Pompeii and Rome. She's quite, she's quite engaging. Um, one of my favorite uh, YouTube videos is a, is a debate between Mary Beard and Boris Johnson when Boris Johnson was the mayor of London, and Boris Johnson was a, is a study classics, and he's the enthusiastic amateur. He's arguing the Greeks were better. She's the professional uh, academic arguing the Romans for the Roman side, and it's just a wonderful, entertaining debate. And you know, it's it's the whole thing is more or less tongue in cheek, but it's just great the way they argued. It. It, it's it's really it's tremendously entertaining, um, and you know, it's it's. It's some years back now, but it's, it's really fun. She says, I deplore the lack of diversity in the classical profession. She's responding to accusations that classics is a very white discipline. 
She says, I deplore the lack of diversity in the classical profession, but to condemn classical culture would be as simplistic as to offer it unconditional admiration. My, my line has always been that the duty of the academic is to make things seem more complicated. So this is, I'm using her as an example of what I mean by pleading for complexity. Um, uh, and yeah, so I'd say the, as a Christian, I would say that the entire canon, however you define it, of, of Western culture, um, is, is not above criticism and is affected by the fall. Um, and yet, I would argue we must be free to explore, enjoy, and critique it too. And that we need to be discerning when we read the classics, for sure. Just because these are great texts doesn't mean that we just bow before them and, you know, don't think about what we're reading. Absolutely, we should absolutely be discerning. Um, but I would argue there's a big difference between describing or clarifying evil and brokenness and promoting it. Um, and I think that there's, there's a... There's a current in our culture now that wants to say any sort of discourse, as they put it, any sort of communication is always a sort of a, an imposition of something. It's always a power because they think everything that they, they reduce everything to power. So every communication is you trying is, is each party trying to sort of exert power over the other. And I think that's too reductionist. I don't think that you know the Iliad is really doing that or Shakespeare so much. And I would say literature immerses us in human experience. And therefore, it cannot be merely safe. So there seems a little bit of the sort of occupational health and safety, safetyism here too, that we're frightened. We're frightened of being overpowered and oppressed by something bad. Um, and I think there's a, there's a loss of confidence. I think as, as Christians, we can be confident. We have God's revelation and we can, we can put anything up to that and, 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 and discern and examine it and appreciate certain things and repudiate certain things. And I wonder, I wonder if in our time, as we've lost the anchors that used to hold us, the cultural religious anchors, particularly the Bible, I wonder if there's a fear driving this, this fear of being controlled, of being infiltrated by bad ideas. Because after all, everything's about power and all texts are really just there to try and control and oppress someone else. And so there's a, I think there's a lot of fear there. And I, I would say we don't have to be so afraid. We can be discerning. Um, and I would say, just because we immerse ourselves in the world of a story like the Odyssey, does that mean that we're necessarily being indoctrinated with the mores and values of that world and bound to perpetuate them? Seems very un unnecessarily fearful to me. Are we really sort of doomed to perpetuate whatever we read? <clears throat> Surely, I, I would argue it's not that simple. We don't need, I would say we don't need to be helpless victims of the stories that we read any more than we need to be helpless victims of our own history or our group's history or our nation's history. We have agency, we have awareness, we can think and discern and sift, I would argue. <clears throat> okay, so what about the author's intention and context, for example? Um, doesn't that count for something? Um, that, that some works are propagandistic, some are not. Surely we can think that through. Um, what, it, what is intention context? Is it propaganda? Or is it simply taking place in a world that's different to ours? Okay, Dennis Feeney, who, uh, yeah, wonderful classicist, he, he, he said, now he's not a Christian, I don't think. I have no reason to think he's, I don't think he's a Christian. Um, wouldn't share my beliefs necessarily. But he, this is an interesting comment of his. He says, in some moods, I feel that this is just a moment of despair. 
And people are trying to find significance, even if it only comes from self-accusation. So he's referring to white Western colleagues um, sort of tearing down their own cultural heritage, their own past. Um, and, and he's wondering if it's, a, if it's a search for significance of some kind. I'm not sure that there is a discipline that's exempt from the fact that it's part of the history of this country. Um, I think he's speaking about the US. How distinctly wicked is classics? I don't know that it is. <clears throat> okay, so allowing for complexity, acknowledging both beauty and brokenness. Um, should we deny ourselves access to the beauty, like I was saying, um, just in order to remain untainted by the brokenness? Um, also, I would say, you know, the canon isn't fixed. <clears throat> it's fluid, it's always growing and changing, so there's always room for new voices too. It doesn't have to only be um, from a certain... As the West becomes more diverse, there's no reason why the canon can't diversify with it. That's fine. Um, there's no definitive final list, like I was saying. Um, and even the canon as we have it now, it's not all dead white males. I actually think that's a little bit of a myth. You know, if you, if you think about the ancient Greeks, um, how white were, were they really? I mean, I, you know, this is a strange conversation in a way to even have to me, but, you know, they're olive skin, they're Mediterranean, they actually have quite dark hair and dark eyes and olive skin. I, I mean, is that white? I, I don't know. You know, it's a little bit of a, again, it's a little bit simplistic to me. Even the Bible, you know, the Bible's uh, foundational, it, it's, it's the key text uh, of Western culture, and it's a Middle Eastern text. It's Asian, technically. Middle East is part of Asia. Um, it's not European. It's not written by white people, actually. It's written by, by Middle Eastern people. So um, there's also women there, too, and they are a smaller number, but you know, you've got Sappho, even in the ancient, she's one of the greatest Greek poets. Um, now, we can talk more about this. I, 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 um, I, I recognize that there's fewer women than men authoring our canon, and there's various reasons for that. Um, I don't think it's only because of oppression, but there, there's various reasons. We could, we could talk more about that if you wish later. But certainly, you know, Jane Austen features as one of the greatest English novelists, for example, of all time. You've got the Brontes. Um, there are... It's not only males and they're not only white, I would argue. And I'd also say that classics as a whole, the classics in the broader sense, they embody the entire range of intellectual and political viewpoints through, throughout history. They embody a huge range of viewpoints. Even in ancient Greek um, tragedies, you've got a succession of incredibly strong women. And this is a society where women were much more restricted even than they were, say, in ancient Rome, socially and legally. And yet... Um, you've got these very powerful women doing all kinds of things. And, um, you know, you've got a media saying, saying, oh, men, men are so foolish to think that they're protecting us by fighting for us. She says, I'd rather, I'd rather stand in the battle line three times and give birth once. You know, in other words, here at home, we face death, we face danger, we face pain. They don't only go out and do all that for us on the battlefield. We do it here too. And in fact... I'd, I'd happily swap with them. So that, that's Euripides, that's 400 BC. So that's, can you see how that, that's just, in some ways a startlingly contemporary sounding voice coming at you from 400 BC. So th this is an example of what I mean by they, they embody a huge range of viewpoints through, through history. There's many voices there. 
even if the authors tend to be male a lot much of the time, there's still um, many voices, I would argue, in there. And I would also argue that the content is ultimately more important than the author's identity group. I'd say we're all human. So I would challenge this idea that, that, um, you know, that what, what's more important is whether the author's a male or a female, because it's really about universal. These texts are really about universal human experience. Um, they can be written by a man, they can be written by a woman, they can be written by this or that ra racial or ethnic group. Um, but I would say the content is really more important. And I'd say as Christians, we are free to explore and, and measure things against the Bible, like I was saying. I think it's the reductionist ideologies that actually um, tend towards totalitarianism, that want to restrict and forbid and make sure you're not tainted. Um, you, you can see the difference, maybe as an example, this is a drastic example, but this different way of thinking. Um, in World War II, um, when the Red Army was, was coming through Europe, pushing the Nazis back, the, the, they, they liberated a lot of prisoners of war as they came through Europe and they liberated Americans and Brits and French and they liberated their fellow Russians. And they had this idea, the communists, that their prisoners of war had been tainted by contact with the fascists um, and they would take their own prisoners and, and execute them all and they'd, and they'd give the British and American prisoners back to the British and Americans. But they, there was this idea that They've been tainted by contact with the fascists. Um, we will be, in, we're in danger, our whole society will be in danger if we let them come back into the USSR. And that's a very drastic example. What we're dealing with here with cancelling the classics is much, much milder than that. Okay, I'm not trying to equate the two as being of equal magnitude. But there's something of a similar mentality there. There's a fear of being tainted. And I would say we're actually free to explore and to discern and that it's restrictive ideologies that want to want to restrict and forbid and censor I would I would argue okay so we can come back to, to this stuff too oh and finally yeah does does cancellation solve what does it actually solve does it solve the problems of the human heart and human society so well, this text has these bad things in it we'll ban it does that really solve the problem of the human heart I would suggest it doesn't that is a rhetorical question <coughs> um, but now let's to now I want to pivot. Now I want to pivot to the invitation. Okay, so I've, I've talked through some of the blocks. Um, now I want to quickly pivot to, the, to the more of the invitational side. Why read the classics? Please come back to any of that stuff I've said in the discussion. But let me now invite you into it. The first thing to say about the classics is, is they're actually more fun. I know they can seem boring and intimidating, but what I mean by that is they actually give superior pleasure, enjoyment, and entertainment, believe it or not. They're actually more entertaining because, um, because of that greater depth and complexity and excellence in, in plunging us into human existence, they're actually more entertaining and delightful than other works once we've developed a taste for them. So I said they're harder work, but they're richer reward. Okay, they're more fun. They give us, I would also argue you should read them because they feed you, they feed your soul because they... They're, they give you aesthetic beauty and delight. There's a greater degree of technical and artistic excellence. So you've got things like unity, coherence, progression, repetition, balance, symmetry, contrast, clarity combined with multiplicity. In a word, more beauty, hence delight, okay? heightened aesthetic enjoyment. 
uh, they're profoundly enriching too. So the subject of literature, as I've said, is the concrete portrayal of human experience. Um, and the classics, I would argue, the great books, however, you know, whichever ones we, we, we consider to be those, offer a fuller and richer portrayal of human experience. And therefore, we imaginatively enter into um, authentic human experiences more profoundly when we read them. They have greater psychological depth. They tend to subtlety, complexity. So an example of this enrichment, Matthew Arnold wrote, the best poetry will be found to have a power of forming, sustaining and delighting us as nothing else can. That's from his work, The Study of Poetry. Um, then we have, bear with me, uh, C.S. Lewis said an experiment on, in criticism. He wrote of the enormous extension of our being, which we owe to authors. They extend our being in some way. He says, those of us who have been true... Now, please don't read this as a smug, a smug statement, but those of us who have been true readers all our life seldom fully realize the enormous extension of our being, which we owe to authors. We realize it best when we talk with an unliterary friend. The man who is contented to be only himself is in prison. Lewis obviously was a lover of books, so he, he just wouldn't have been able to imagine going through life without reading lots of books. Now, many people do, and I think they still have you know, rich, li rich lives. There's other, there's other things you can do. But it is an interesting point that does in some ways extend our being um, because we vicariously live through things we actually ha haven't lived through. So holding up a, a mirror to human life and nature can enlarge us enrich us as we engage with other people's stories through our imagination. And they force us to imagine a world very different to our own, which I think is interesting. I think history does that, the study of history and the study of stories. They force us to imagine a world very different to our own, um, not only by putting us often in a past world, but in someone else's world, past, present or future. And this, I think, helps us to develop empathy, love, concern for others, um, as well as teaching us a lot about ourselves through deepening our understanding of human experience. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse that. Uh, this technology is not my friend. So, um, so why read the classics? So the next thing, okay, so we've got more fun, aesthetic beauty, profound enrichment, high cost, high reward. Yes, I, I think I've already talked about that, haven't I? Um, Le yeah, uh, Leyland Riken, who's a, who's a professor at Wheaton of English literature, he notes that his students tended to do their best work when they were engaging with more difficult writers, such as Shakespeare or Milton. So that's a really interesting observation, right? High cost but high reward. He said he got the best out of his students when they were engaging with those harder texts. Um, it also helps us wrestle with, looking at the classics, we end up wrestling with great ideas. Now, we don't want to reduce the masterworks merely to their ideas. That's a mistake we can make too, just approaching them just for their ideas. They're not just ideas. But we can observe that one of their greatest services to us is the fact that they bring important, profound questions, the big questions of life to our minds. Okay, they're an avenue through which we can encounter the great issues, problems, challenges and mysteries of life, such as suffering, love. This does not mean they always tell us the truth necessarily, but they stimulate our thinking at the very least about ideas, which hopefully sharpens our understanding of truth, contributes to our sharpening of our understanding. So they can become our teachers and our friends throughout life, um, inviting us into a gr this great conversation that's been going on through history. Okay? And the great conversation is between the authors and us, the authors in each generation, but also even between the authors. So later authors, 
will often interact with older authors in there, right? It's very fascinating. I'll, I'll try and give you an example uh, at the end. Uh, and they also give us a perspective from the past often. And they, they quite often give us contact with the past. A lot of them are from the past. And this is significant. I just want to spend a moment on this. Um, this is significant for several reasons. Um, firstly, this gives us a distance from which to see our own times in a different light and from a different perspective. So they liberate us from bondage to the contemporary. Is that amazing? So they, yeah, by giving us a perspective from the past, they liberate us from bondage to the contemporary. And they also show us how a lot of our mistakes are timeless too, and that's fine as well. Um, so C.S. Lewis talks about this. He says, in learning in wartime, he says, we need intimate knowledge of the past. Not that the past has any magic about it, but because we need something to set against the present. The person who knows the past has lived in many times and is therefore in some degree immune from the great cataract of nonsense that pours from the press and the microphone of his own age. So by reading the classics and just texts from the past in general could actually, rather than dragging you into having to just replicate some terrible thing from the past, it could equally fortify you against propaganda of the present, right? Um, <clears throat> so this, this immersion, um, this immersion in an unfamiliar world with a different culture, assumptions, beliefs, it expands our view of human possibilities. And it also helps us to see how differently we think and act compared to our forebears. That's not a bad thing to see how things have changed too. So this encounter with the past can be a catalyst for clarifying our own thinking. Maybe because we see things that are repugnant to us and that helps us something or we see something that we really think is beautiful from the past again can help to clarify so it gives us perspective right and then um, it's amazing how contemporary they are um, the reference I mentioned from Euripides Medea um, to me sounds very contemporary in many ways um, so it they, they can surprise us about how contemporary they are and by extension how much of the past we, we actually resonate with so the classics can help to anchor us to a permanent standard of what it means to be human and to live the good life. They, they, are, they are can function as a live tradition that guards us against being prey to contemporary fashion or prejudice. Okay, so they can guard us. They also, because of their complexity and profundity, they guard us against reductionism um, that I've mentioned a few times. C.S. Lewis, when he was asked by someone near the end of his life what his whole purpose had been in all his writings and all his works and all his speech speaking and he said it was to fight reduction without missing a beat he just said to fight reductionism the person asking him was amazed because they thought he'd probably think about it and you know puff on his pipe a few times and sort of really have to think about it. he was like no he knew he knew immediately he knew exactly what he was about was fighting against reductionism and I, so i would say um the final thing i just want to say it shapes our longings they, that reading these texts can help can help to shape our longings, our affections towards goodness. Now, obviously, I'm presupposing there's such a thing as goodness and that you can grow more like it. And, you know, that, that's a discussion we can have too if you wish to talk more about that. But I am assuming that that's possible. Um, and I would argue that these books do that. They, they can be part of doing that at the very least. So now I want to look at a few examples. Um, just some examples. I thought, I don't want to just talk about the classics. I also want to go to the classics with you. And um, let's look at some together. You can see how amazing they are and you can be convinced by what I'm trying to do. Um, so 
I wanted to look at some with you. So the first example I wanted to look at was actually for poetic form, an example of excellence and complexity in poetic form. So this is technical excellence, right? So it's an example of richness and complexity of literary form. So ha have a look at this. So this is the first stanza of Edmund Spencer's poem, The Fairy Queen. It's the largest poem, longest poem in the English language. C.S. Lewis thought it was also the greatest poem in the English language. I haven't read the whole thing. It's unfinished. So it's the longest poem in the English language. It's not even finished. Um, and it was written in, published in 1590, so it's contemporary with Shakespeare. So this is the first stanza. Let, 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 me read it, let me read it with you. So it says, A gentle knight was pricking on the plain. That means spurring his horse. They would call it, you know, you're pricking the sides of the horse with your spurs. A gentle knight was pricking on the plain, it clad in mighty arms and silver shield, wherein old dints of deep wounds did remain, the cruel marks of many a bloody field. Yet arms till that time did he never wield. His angry steed did chide his foaming bit, as much disdaining to the curb to yield. Full jolly knight he seemed, and fair did sit, as one for knightly jousts and fierce encounters fit. And on his breast a bloody cross he bore, the dear remembrance of his dying lord, for whose sweet sake that glorious badge he wore, and dead as living ever him adored. Upon his shield the like was also scored, for sovereign hope which in his help he had. Right faithful true he was in deed and word, but of his cheer did seem too solemn sad, yet nothing did he dread, but ever was in bad. It's a shame we've lost that word. Upon a great adventure he was bond, bound, that greatest Gloriana to him gave, that greatest glorious queen of Fairyland, to win him worship and her grace to have, which of all earthly things he most did crave. And ever as he rode, his heart did yearn to prove his puissance in battle brave, that's his courage, upon his foe and his new force to learn, upon his foe a dragon horrible and stern. So I just want to draw attention to this as an example of sort of next level in terms of uh, poetic form and, and richness and complexity, but who, who's ever read that before? Is that new to most of you? Can, do you want to put your hand up if you've read that one? It's, much, Spencer's more obscure than Shakespeare or Milton, but he's, he's a really wonderful poet. You can see it's very um, decorated. It's like Tudor wood carving. If you go to a National Trust house built from this time, you'll go into these rooms of rich oak and there'll be, there'll be all this rich intertwining carving, for example. They, th th this is written like that. It's dense. It's um, decorated. It's unnecessarily beautiful, right? Um, I would argue. Now, this is a fascinating poem. So he wrote it as an allegorical. Did any of you pick up on any allegory there? It's, it's almost like a posher version of Pilgrim's Progress, almost. So each book of the Fairy Queen um, is, is focused on a certain Christian virtue. So the first book is a virtue of holiness. So this knight is the knight representing holiness. Um, did you notice... Um, so it's allegorical, um, and there's multiple layers to that. So it's set in this fantasy land, but it's also this epic for Protestant England. 
And the fairy queen is, of course, Elizabeth I, right? Gloriana, Elizabeth I. So she's the fairy queen. So these knights that represent these different Christian virtues and serve her, they also are, are a little bit like the, the, the great lords that gathered around Elizabeth and, and sailed around the world. And, you know, Drake and Raleigh and Essex and all these guys that sort of really, it was a glorious time, right? And he's reflecting that in the poem. So you've got, it's reflecting contemporary politics and, and national concerns. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's an epic for Protestant England. So later, this knight goes into a grove and he, this monster vomits out all these like books and pamphlets that sort of um, Catholic, Catholic tracts and, and false teachings and all that. So there's this contemporary element. It's also just a fantasy poem about knights fighting dragons and just for the interest knights and like you read King Arthur, you know, knights, dragons, ladies. It's just entertaining and rich as a story. The landscape is very richly... You can lose yourself just in the landscape of the Fairy Queen. Um, and then it's about the Christian journey through life and, and the Christian life. So notice that he's a brand new knight. He's never, he arms to that time, he's never wielded a weapon before, but his armor is all banged up. Dint, old dints of deep wounds remain in his armor. So the cruel marks of many a bloody field. So what, what might that be indicating? Um, what makes what does that make you think of? Second hand armor. armor, exactly. So how might that relate to the idea of the Christian life or Christian virtues? Does that is armor ever used as a as an image in the Bible, for example, in the New Testament? Ephesians, yeah. The whole armor of God. So Paul talks about yeah. So the idea is that you know it's fifteen ninety. The idea is that for the last you know fifteen hundred years. Um, this armor has been worn by all the Christians before him, right? The, the, the armor that Paul describes. Um, and so that, that's the idea. He's a young Christian, sort of embarking on his journey, but he's got this old armor that's already been through many battles and has many dents in it. It's, 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 a, it's an amazing one. And he, he, he gives you all that just in a few lines there. But the meter is... Uh, particularly incredible, really. So let's just have a quick look at this. So the Spenserian stanza, it's his own stanza that he came up with. Um, it's got eight lines of iambic pentameter, that's like Shakespeare, you know, five beats to the line, followed by a single one that's um, an Alexandrine, so that's six beats. So that last one's longer, as one for nightly joust and fierce encounters fit. So it, it gives you this amazing um, rhythm where you get the iambic pentameter going along and then there's this longer line which, at the end of the stanza, which brings a little bit of closure to the stanza. But then you go to the next stanza and it keeps going. And then so you've got this sort of ebb and flow. You've got the, the iambic pentameter taking you forward each stanza. And then at the end of each one, you've got this little backwash, this little back, you know, like, like the sea, like waves you know, coming and going out. You've got this little bit of tension in the meter pu pulling the other way. The longer line, I think, does that. But it also gives this little closure to each stanza, it makes each stanza a little self-contained thing. So it's, it's, it's quite brilliant. Um, the rhyme scheme is fiendish, right? A, B, A, B, B, C, B, C, C. So he's got to find two A rhymes, he's got to find four B rhymes and three C rhymes um, in each stanza. And, and it just feels effortless when you read Spencer. It's just, they just roll off his pen. It's just, most of the time, they, they just feel effortless and natural. That's actually really hard to do that. That's a Herculean demands on him as a poet. Um, 
So he didn't finish it, but it's still the longest poem ever written in English. So it's pretty astounding that he just had such control of his meter and just flows on and on. So I'm trying to give this to you as an example of technical excellence, richness and complexity of form. Okay, let's have a look at the Odyssey. So the Odyssey came out in for a bit of criticism earlier in that article, that little, that little quote I gave you, right? That it was sexist, ableist, um, racist, words to that effect. I want to just have a look with you in Homer's Odyssey. This is book eight. So Odysseus, you've got to remember one of Odysseus's uh, titles is Sacker of Cities, right? Because he's a genius at, you know, he came up with a wooden horse. He's a, he's a genius at finding his way into cities and, and you know, get, really getting them destroyed. You know, he, 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 will, he will outthink them. And he's also a mighty warrior in his own right, but he's also a strategist. So he has, in his time, sacked a lot of cities and caused a lot of suffering. And this is a really interesting point in the poem because uh, it's, it's book eight and he is, he's being washed up on this, this island where no one knows, they don't know who he is, but he's famous. As one of the Trojan heroes, he is famous. And their bard, the bard here, he's the honoured guest. They don't actually know who he is yet. And their bard sings about the fall of Troy that he was involved in. And it's very interesting to see his reaction and to see what the simile that's used does to describe his reaction. So, very briefly, Homeric similes are one of the glories of world literature. I and mean, they're, they're absolutely amazing. You could, just, you could just read Homer just for the similes. So, that they have this amazing ability to... They'll be the narrative's going along and it says, just like this. So, so the warrior fell like a pine tree when it falls in the mountains. It gives you this beautiful little description and you hear it and you see it and you feel the tree fall. You know, it's really vivid. So he fell and his armor clanged around him. You know, that's the thing. So these, these similes constantly divert you from the scene of the action to some other scene. So if it's a war poem like the Iliad, you actually get the, 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 the monotony of the war. It's constantly broken by these vivid similes of peaceful life. So when, one of the soul, when Menelaus gets wounded, he gets wounded in the thigh and his, or in the, in the torso, I think, I forget now, but his blood flows. It, it describes it as like when women are dyeing cloth and they dip it in the red dye and bring it up and it's all red. It's just a, a spine-tingling um, image. It's really amazing. <clears throat> so um, this is one of these similes. This is one of these amazing Homeric similes. And look what it does. There's, it's quite sophisticated and surprising, I think, very surprising, this simile does. Um, in this supposedly sort of male-dominated, patriarchal, you know, oppressive culture, as, as many would describe it. And yet, look what it does here. Have a look. This is the bard. He sang then how the sons of the Achaeans left their hollow hiding place, the Achaeans are the Greeks, and streamed from the horse and sacked the city. And he sang how one and another fought through the steep citadel, and how in particular Odysseus went with godlike Menelaus, like Ares, the god of war, to find the house of Deiphobus. And there, he said, he endured the grimmest fighting that ever he had, but won it there too, with great-hearted Athene aiding. Okay, so the bard is singing about Odysseus's greatest moment of triumph, when they're finally, after 10 years, they're finally inside Troy, and they're sacking it. And Odysseus and Menelaus are on the rampage, they've got gods helping them, and they are just laying waste to Troy. Okay, so it's Odysseus's moment of greatest glory, according to the male martial glory culture of ancient Greece. This should be his greatest moment. But look how he reacts. 
So the famous singer sang his tale, but Odysseus melted, and from under his eyes the tears ran down, drenching his cheeks. As a woman weeps, lying over the body of her dear husband, who fell fighting for her city and people as he tried to beat off the pitiless day from city and children. She sees him dying and gasping for breath, and winding her body about him, she cries high and shrill, while the men behind her, <coughs> hitting her with their spear butts on the back and the shoulders, force her up and lead her away into slavery to have hard work and sorrow, and her cheeks are racked with pitiful weeping. And it finishes, such were the pitiful tears Odysseus shed from under his brows. But they went unnoticed by all the others. But Alcinous, that's his host, alone understood what he did and noticed since he was sitting next to him and heard him groaning heavily. And I believe in the text he covers his face with his cloak. Um, <clears throat> I think that's an astounding, um, <clears throat> astounding piece a moment. So it's, I was trying to find a moment in it's such a huge text. With the, the greatness needs to be experienced across the whole epic. So it's difficult to just bring you a little tiny excerpt that's going to somehow illustrate how wonderful the classics are, right? Because they're, you've got to read the whole thing. So it's, you know, it's not lyric poetry, it's epic poetry. So I'm trying to find you a little gobbit, a little nugget to convey what I mean. I think this is quite an amazing <coughs> idea that it's this Bronze Age poetry originally. Um, it's very, very ancient, <clears throat> what we would today call a very male-dominated society. But Odysseus, having his moment of greatest masculine martial glory sung to him, <clears throat> he weeps unexpectedly. So he he's, has kind of PTSD, right? He has, we say now, he's traumatized, he's broken by, by this, and he's likened to exactly the kind of woman that he has killed the husband of, sacked the city of, taken into slavery, all those things. So it's a remarkable reversal, just within the simile. It's not heavy-handed. It doesn't say, and look at Odysseus, see how, you know. It's just there in the, in the simile, if, you, if you're there, if you see it. Why, why did they choose that? Why did the poet choose that particular thing to liken him to? It, it's very, it's fascinating to me. It surely shows some awareness of, of um, reversal, reversing roles and universal human experience. And in a sense, it's, I, I would argue it's suggesting that he is, is shifting, he's, growing, he's developing, he's changing in a sense through, through time, I would suggest, that he's being likened to one of his own victims. Um, <clears throat> so he is himself broken. Um, okay, the, the other one from the Odyssey I wanted to show you is from book 23 where Again, it's, a, it's one of these beautiful similes, and again, it's a reversal. And, and at these, both these things, it's no accident, these both have to do with gender, okay? Because gender is a very big preoccupation of our culture and our, and our academia. And the way that we, when we look at these texts, we're very sensitive often about their gender relations. So that's why both these examples have to do with gender. Have a look at this one. So this is where Odysseus and Penelope are finally reunited. And he spent the whole poem testing and outwitting everyone. He gets home and at the very last moment <clears throat> when he finally comes back, she tests and outwits him because she has to be sure it's really him. And so she's, she, she, Penelope is very much portrayed as his, his equal in cunning and stratagem and the resilience and all those things. <clears throat> so 
So as part of her being his equal, look at how this simile portrays them. She spoke, <coughs> this is where they finally recognized each other, still more aroused in him the passion for weeping. He wept as he held his lovely wife, whose thoughts were virtuous, that's a formulaic. <coughs> and as when the land appears welcome to men who are swimming, after Poseidon has smashed their strong-built ship on the open water, pounding it with the weight of wind and the heavy seas, and only a few escape the grey water landward by swimming, with a thick scurf of salt coated upon them, and gladly they set foot on the shore, escaping the evil. So welcome was her husband to her, as she looked upon him, and she could not let him go from the embrace of her white arms. To me, that second last eye is so unexpected, because can you see what it's doing? It, it's a, it's, a, it's a, a simile describing his experience, right? His experience up till now. That's happened to him over and over. Poseidon's been after him. He's been wrecked. He's just survived. <clears throat> and to show their oneness as husband and wife, it's, it flips it around. And she is actually being likened to a sailor shipwrecked like that. You can see how it's identified. It's a beautiful way of identifying them with each other. And to say that her experience even though she was at home fending off the suitors, her experience is not so unlike his in some ways, right? And his return, him coming back to her, is like when a sailor comes home, which is what he's literally, what's literally happening to him is being metaphorically likened to what's happening to her. Can you see that? So it's this amazing intertwining of their experience and it gives equal dignity, I, I would suggest, to both. <clears throat> and it's an amazing way of showing their oneness and their... So I, I, I think that's really striking. <clears throat> okay, I'm going to stop there. I have further examples, a couple of further examples. Oh, okay, look, I'm going to show you one. Um, Dante's Commedia, the nature of evil. I'm going to skip the nature of evil. I'm going to go to the shorter one. See this rapaeus and the divine character? It's a snippet of the great conversation between Dante and Virgil. So you know I said that these books will often talk to each other. Okay, we can come back to the nature of e evil as frozen and immobilized if you want to. Just come with me briefly for Repaeus. Repaeus is the most, he's the most righteous man in Troy. So when Troy is destroyed, he is the most righteous Trojan. And in Virgil's Aeneid, so this is now moving on from the Greeks to the Romans, this is from Virgil to, from Homer to Virgil. Virgil's the great Roman epic. He describes the fall of Troy from the defender's perspective, from the Trojan perspective. And he has this, this terrifying and chilling phrase where he says, uh, I'll show you what he says right now. He says, if you look at the top left there, Virgil's in book two, he says, Repaeus falls to, this is where the Greeks are just running rampage and killing everyone. Repaeus falls to the most righteous man in Troy, the most devoted to justice, but the gods had other plans. And in the Latin, it's, very, it's, it's even more minimal. It just says, dies aliter visum. To the gods, it seemed otherwise. Or to the gods, it seemed good to do something else, to do otherwise. And he's just cut down like everybody else. Now, Dante loves Virgil. Virgil is his guide through <coughs> hell and purgatory. He, he, he's his, you know, his poetic mentor and mentor in many ways. But Virgil can't let this go, this idea that the gods would just not care about the most righteous man in the city. And so Dante puts Repaeus in his paradise 
Okay, so you could argue about how biblical this is, but you can see what Dante is trying to do. Let's see what he says. He says, and who in that erroneous world down there would ever think that Trojan Repheus was fifth within that round of holy lights? This is one of the levels of heaven. Here, he now knows far more about God's grace, although his vision does not pierce the depths, than any in the earthly world can see. So he, in a sense, he's, he's talking to, to Virgil. He's kind of saying, oh, Virgil, your poem's amazing, but this is not how the true God is. The true God... Justice matters to the true God. He's not whimsical. He's not just, well, you know, maybe if maybe the gods will honor your, you being just, maybe they won't. In, in Raphael's case, to the gods, it seemed otherwise. And, and, and Dante saying, no, no. So he puts him in, in heaven with the idea that, that God would actually honor. The God that he's talking about honors justice and loves righteousness and justice. So can you see how that's, that's an example of this conversation that goes on even between the books themselves. Okay, I'll stop there. I'm going to finish with, have some war poetry. We don't have time. This is the final, this is the final um, quote I wanted to finish with. C.S. Lewis, In reading great literature, I become a thousand men and yet remain myself. Like the night sky in the Greek poem, I see with a myriad eyes, but it is still I who see. Here, as in worship, in love, in moral action, and in knowing, I transcend myself, and I'm never more myself than when I do. The end. Thank you, Peter. Why don't we take, uh, as it's become our custom, why don't we take uh, two or three minutes, chat amongst yourself, take some of that in, and then let's, let's pepper Peter with questions. <coughs> As, as is tradition, we're, we're in the realm of tradition here, uh, I, I get to uh, ask, ask one of the first questions. Peter, my, as you were talking and talking about, I think, I think the complexity of the stories, and as someone who, ha who has not read much um, uh, of any of the classics, one of the things I, I've noticed in even like some of the literature I see now, some of the children's literature uh, I have, it seems like seems, and this is a question I have for you, quite moralistic at times, that, 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 that you're really kind of explicitly moralistic. Like there's no, like you talked about complexity, it's just right there in your face, this is what is good and what you need. And I'm curious because they, they, these are written for a purpose. So I'm assuming that there is, it's hoping to do something to the reader. Would you describe them as, as kind of moralistic, having a, you know, a, a real uh, clear, uh, desire end and kind of this is right and you need to be like this or is it how complex is that picture in in the classics and is that uh, uh, would they all tend to have something like that or are they so complex that it's it's difficult to see what they're aiming at yeah. it's a great that's that a great question really John. in order to mirror see how complex i am okay first i want to say um don't feel like I'm someone that has read all the classics, and you know I actually have only read some. There's many that I haven't read. There's some I've dipped into and haven't finished. So I just want to say I'm I'm still learning about them myself. I'm on the journey to to try and get to know them better myself. So don't yeah don't put me on a pedestal as you know the you have to know the great wise one that knows all about it. You yeah you were asking about moralism. Um, are are the classics moralistic? 
Um, is there always an obvious moral? Are they too complex for that? And you're contrasting that with, with some current, current books that you've seen, or maybe they're films, uh, current yeah. stories that are very moralistic, sort of in your face, mm -hmm. most yeah, aggressively moralistic. I, I would say, I would say the, the great texts, one feature of them is that they're complex and that they're, you know, they're a concrete portrayal of human experience. They're also designed to be entertaining, fun, but also immerse you in the, in the complexity of human experience. So I would say you can certainly often draw morals from them. There's often morals there to be, to be um, fruitfully thought through and, and you know, maybe ex extracted from them, but it's not their primary aim is to be moralistic, but there'll often be important lessons about life and reality that you learn from them. But they do that by not being simplistic. They convey those by giving you life in its richness and complexity. So th that's, that's what it's part of what makes them rich. There's a lot there to be, to be garnered, but it's not, it's not a clear sort of in-your-face moral. And people sometimes draw different morals from the same one. And, and that doesn't necessarily mean you're both wrong or one is wrong. Um, you might both be seeing things the other one hasn't seen. Um, one person might be reading into it. You know, that, that's all a whole discussion you can have. But no, I, I would say that, that a good book will have, there will very often be lessons, moral lessons you can draw from them, but it's not the primary aim and it, nor, and it, shouldn't, be to feel, it shouldn't feel imposed or contrived. It shouldn't feel contrived. Um, it should feel natural. Interesting that I'm just thinking about the Bible as one of the in the same Absolutely, I, I would count it as one. Yeah. You, you, if you read it in one sense as a book of heroes, you can really misread the stories. Mm. So if you see all the, the characters, particularly in the Old Old Testament, as all oh, that they are, we're supposed to be like them. Right. You get very confused. Sure. To the, the quote moral of the story, and yeah. that's not really what it is that it's trying to do. Right. Like that. When you're always trying, oh, this is good guy, this is bad guy. Yeah. There's one level right. that's often clear, and yes. level it's not. Yes, and some stories can can be a little bit more that way than others. Yeah. There's gradations, but yes, you're right. It would be too simple. You wouldn't want to jump on your know, Samson. Yeah, he's oh wait, oh, he's yeah. actually, and then you know, but then you know, he 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 trusts God at the end. There's all, yeah. yeah. There's all kinds of ups and downs that mirror human experience. Yeah. So yeah, no, that's right. They they, classics resist. Um, reductionism and, and sort of simplistic. They can be simple in some way. Simplicity is not, is not a bad thing at all, but s simplistic, if something is simplistic, yeah. in a sense of superficial, they tend to resist that. Yeah. yeah. Well, Thank you, Joel. Open it up uh, to other thoughts and questions. One in the back. Richard, Richard, yeah. Thank you. Still on, on the theme of, of describing and promoting, I guess. Yes. Um, when, when we come to council culture, do you think, you know, in the modern time, do you think it's because primarily someone is, you know, merely talking about racism, sexism, misogyny, and all, all the other things, and we don't want to hear them spoken about, or is it because they're actually promoting those concepts? Okay, so your question is, um, when it comes to cancel culture, you're thinking about that difference between promoting and just depicting. Um, are you saying when, when, someone is, when, when somebody is talking about racism, sexism, misogyny, are they, just, are they actively promoting it or are they just describing it? Is that your question? Yes, it, and it's, it's entirely 
isn't it valuable to know the difference? Yes, exactly. That's what I'm, that's what I'm advocating for. I'm saying that the two things are not necessarily the same. Um, and I would say um, that because, because literature is supposed to, like I've been saying, it's supposed to, what I say, it's a concrete portrayal of human experience, right? It's meant to portray human experience. Those things, racism, sexism, you name, they are part of human experience. So if literature is going to be good literature, a hallmark of it doing its job well would be that those things occur in the story, in the stories, right? Because they are a part of human experience. Sadly, they are. It's to be lamented that they are, but they are a part of human experience. And so actually, if they're absent and it's all squeaky clean and, and sort of safe and sanitized, it's not actually good literature because it's not giving us reality, the, the reality of human existence we actually have to grapple with. And there's definitely a difference, of course, I would say, between promoting, trying to sort of inculcate sexism or something versus just existing in a certain cultural milieu where certain things are normal. Sometimes the, the author will be unaware of those things. Um, they may have blind spots, as we all do, from their own cultural milieu. And that's where I think we don't have to be afraid, though. That's where we can be discerning. We can read them and chew it over and think about it and say, I wonder, maybe they, this author is po possibly unaware of this, of this thing. Um, but I, I think it's important to know the difference, yes, between promotion and simply depiction. I mean, pr promote is a hard, that's a hard thing to pin down with a complex. How do you, how would you, yeah, how would you argue they're promoting um, promoting something, it would, you would, you'd have to discuss the particulars of an actual book or speech or form or something. It's hard, it's hard to talk about this in the abstract, but yeah. I'll, I'll stop there. Have, uh, have we got Eve? Eve. Okay, so, so you were saying, what are we trying to rewrite today when we cancel or ban old books that we find objectionable? What is the point of cancelling? What is this era trying to teach us in the future? Do you mean by sort of <laughs> eradicating <coughs> the past, eradicating these older books? What are we trying to achieve? What are we trying to teach? Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, it's, that is a good question. I mean, I, I think they're trying to, um, to me, it smacks of either fear, they're simply afraid of things that depict um, unsavory things or, or, or gender relations, for example, that they think are harmful. They're afraid of just people even being exposed to that in a, in a compelling story because then they might um, replicate those harmful patterns in, in their own life. Um, and that's not a completely baseless fear. Um, I just think we don't need to be so afraid that we do away with the book altogether. I just think we can have a conversation about it. We can think about it. We can be discerning. Um, and there's also possibly something utopian and again reductionist about it. It's, it's, I think it partly flows from the idea that um, the problems in society are they're structural, they're to do with power relations. Um, and so if we can sort of get rid of all depictions of the bad kind of power structures and then we'll sort of have a blank slate in which we can inculcate the good ones and that will solve our problems. I think there's, there's some of that, that. This is how we build a better society. There's also an idea, I think, that um, there's a huge link that they make between discourse. If you read like the French existentialists, they, they talk about sort of societal discourses um, um, keeping people in these, in these oppressive hierarchies and patterns um, and therefore like language is very important, what you say, the words you hear, the rhetoric you hear is all very um, forming upon the structures that the society then brings forth and those structures are the source of suffering and oppression and so if you can sort of get that right, if you can have the right sort of rhetoric and the right sort of language swirling around all the time and only use certain words and not other words and so, sort of like that. You can, you can restructure things and build a much better society. And it's, so it's part of the idea that, um, <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> an extreme and probably overly simplistic version of it is, you know, those videos, which I sometimes watch as a guilty pleasure of these guys on like uni university campus, just white guys wearing like Mexican sombreros and just seeing what people do. And there's all these young students who get really, you know, who just act like they've just killed a baby or something and say, you know, people are dying because of what you're wearing. People are dying. It's this idea that, that rhetoric, um, what we act out, what we construct in our speech and our dress, um, that shapes um, oppressive structures which then kill people. And so by wearing the Mexican hat when you're not Mexican, you're perpetuating um, bigotry and cruelty towards Mexicans and so people are literally dying because of you wearing that and it's, it's I, I don't agree with that but I think that's part of it too is that there's, there's this very strong link between language and oppression and people being oppressed now so by perpetuating certain prejudices by perpetuating certain patterns in their, in their minds you're actually um, you're directly um, culpable, you're directly linked to people suffering now because you're perpetuating these harmful patterns and I, I don't think it's quite that simple. <clears throat> I don't think that a guy wearing a sombrero at Yale means that over here in Mexico someone's dying or someone on the border is being mistreated. I don't think there's such a direct, I think things are more complicated than that but um, it's this idea of, of rhetoric and, and everything being shaped so much by language. Um, and that's partly to do with a breakdown of the deconstruction of language as, 
as referring to something objective. It's just a power play. Language is just a power play. Um, aesthetics are just a power play. Um, everything just comes down to manipulation and power. So it, it has its roots too in that sense of a loss of an objective reality that language can touch and language is interacting with. And therefore, however we shape language, that's just going to shape reality. So you better be really careful what you say, what you depict, what you allow yourself to perpetuate. Did that make any sense, Eve? Okay. I hope that was helpful somehow. Yeah. We have Thorsten uh, and Ruby, you'll be our last, last question. Question from Zoom. Uh, actually, a statement followed by a question. Good and deep artistic forms keep lost within our Western culture. Is this because we are becoming cheap as a culture? Cheap in uh, quotes. What other reasons do you see? That's a pretty big question to address. Um, would that be heard on the recording or do you want me to say that? So it's saying that modern Western art seems to be it's lost depth and richness, would you say? Are they saying modern, the arts now, contemporary arts in, in the West are bereft of those things, of richness, complexity, depth? And why is that and what should we do? Have I rephrased it? Okay. Um, I mean, that, that is pretty sweeping. I, 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 would, I would be careful about saying it's all, there's no rich or good or great arts being produced, artworks being produced in whatever genre or field. I, I think that could be a little bit uh, sweeping to say that about all of it. I think there is, there's, it seems to me like there's been a loss of something. I mean, cultures also morph, so we haven't had an epic poem in English since Milton's Paradise Lost. Um, a lot of great books have been written in between us and Milton, so the novel that replaced the epic, there's things like that. Um, so you've got, to, you've got to remember there's, there's things like that that can be happening and that you can't see yet because you don't have enough perspective. But I think that there has been a loss. I think there's been a... Um, if you look at architecture, there seems to be a, a loss of beauty I can't help but, I know there's a certain subjectivity to that in some sense, but if you look at buildings, older buildings, Victorian, early 1900s, and then there's, in the mid 20th century, there's a real change in the late 20th century, a huge change, the, the 1960s, the concrete. I, I know people find, they, they do, who know more about this than me, they appreciate it in ways that I don't, so I want to be a little bit careful too. But there certainly seems to me to be some kind of degradation that's happened, some kind of decline. Um, exactly why that is, I mean, I think there's been, there's been a loss of meaning in Western culture for sure. Western culture has lost its, its foundational um, stories, its foundational beliefs that gave it meaning and that gave it a sense of what was beautiful and what was true, what was good. I think that has been eroded. Um, and I think often that has been replaced by a kind of ideology that is less, it, it's reductionist, it's less than the full. You know, C.S. Lewis said that his, his life's mission was actually to combat reductionism, which is really interesting that he would say that. I think that, that there has been increasing reductionism, materialism, naturalism, um, in many ways I would argue um, feminism as well, 
you know, where, where we're Marxism, where things are being reduced to economics or power or whatever it might be, reduced to just atoms, you know, life, we're just material, that's a reduction, I'd say. So there's a lot of reductionism happening, which I think um, has hurt us, has hurt our ability to um, really um, depict what is, what is the full, the full you know, beauty and goodness and truth in their fullness. Um, in terms of what to do about it, I mean, that's a big, that's a big, uh, a big one. I mean, I, I don't know. There's no easy solution to, to changing the whole culture. I think you can, I think we can do things as individuals. So, Joel, absolutely, you're right. We can read the classics. I think that helps. It really does. We can get that perspective um, from the past to, to, to bolster us and to give us perspective on the present. You know, we can do things as individuals. Uh, I guess we can do things as groups as well. I, I don't know. That's such a big one. I thank you for the question and the comment. I, I don't know how to do that justice right now. Um, okay. Well, that's good. Well, before I, before I, you know, drift out of sense, I might just stop there. Thank you for the question, though. I'm sure I'm not doing it justice. Ruben, why don't you finish us up tonight? Often, while I seem to sort of think for what I'm here for you, Peter, and the question that's been asked is sort of that in our modern day, we're sort of, uh, sort of in our contemporary minds, we're often imposing our, on our ideas uh, consciously or subconsciously through the classics and how we sort of view them uh, through our sort of modern mind. Um, so my question is sort of how would you uh, encourage people to sort of, in a sense, break the cycle and and have this posture of open-mindedness and curiosity or what it's really saying in the past, uh, the classics? How would I encourage people to break the cycle of sort of rejection or of alienation from the classics? And what did you say? Break the cycle and how did you finish? Um, and kind of have a posture of... Have a posture, okay, of openness and interest and curiosity yeah. towards them. Yeah, I mean, it's really a, a posture, um, I guess, that you need for life to be... You want to have a posture of wonder and curiosity towards life in general. If you have that, then I think you also have that towards stories and books. Um, and, you know how to how to break that cycle. I I don't know. I, I don't think there's a formula for it. Um, I think sometimes people, if they are living in a very reduced understanding of things, often will have to go through some suffering to jolt them out of that reductionist ideological place they're in. Um, maybe they've been very hurt by a certain group or a certain kind of person, and maybe they you know, reduce every, all their sufferings to that person or that group or that, you know, what they've undergone. And I think, I think that is sad, I think that is limiting. I think that does limit you then. Um, so perhaps experiencing life sometimes quite roughly as being bigger than that can, can help to move you out of it. That's a more sort of unpleasant way to be brought out of it. Um, Sometimes, sometimes um, I'd say exposing yourself, trying to expose yourself to beauty. I mean, if you want to break the cycle, I don't know. If someone's not interested in being open to, to those things, I don't know how you make them, but 
exposure to beauty can can help um, because beauty is is like this sort of this whisper this transcendent whisper this whisper from another world and and the arts often give you that that, that whisper from from beyond and so they can you can be following that and follow them in, into a great painting or a great book or great music or something. Um, I think we can try and encourage one another in it too. I loved how last term you were reading Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov with Brent. Um, that was so great. You guys would meet up and talk about it. He knew the, the book beforehand. You didn't, but you were reading it and talking to him. That was such a great way to... Because that's the first, is it the first novel of that kind that you've read, Ruben? Um, one of the first, yeah. One of the first, yeah. I think that's brilliant that you were reading that. Um, and one of our other students last term was, was, was meeting with Ruben and discussing it. So, yeah, being with other people is, is, is really good. I, I don't know how you sort of, you can't force people out of it. You know, if someone's really angry about certain things and... Um, for various reasons, um, some of which may be more or less justified, and they and it makes them very angry with you know any book that shows men in charge or something like that. I don't. There's no easy fix for that, but I guess if you know someone like that, you could, if you get to know them and and win their trust and show curiosity about who they are, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, you could maybe invite them to reconsider. So maybe as a relational thing that can help there, but. Again, it's a very good question, Ruben. These, these questions are really far beyond me. I, I, I don't know how to do justice to that question either. Do you, do you have any thoughts about it? Not currently. Sometimes it's fine. Fair enough. No, that's, <laughs> that's valid. That's fine. No, absolutely, yeah. I, I, I just think if someone's really set against something, you can't force, you can't force it. Um, but I, I do, I, well, one thing I do think is important, so, so Kathleen Stock has just spoken at Oxford and she's a feminist who's just spoken about gen issues around gender and transgender in particular and she was expressing her scepticism or in some ways objections to much of what's going on with the transgender movement and there was an attempt to prevent her from speaking. Activists were there at the university trying to prevent it and Oxford University actually really rose to the occasion I thought very well and they said, no, You're, everyone is of course welcome to disagree with Kathleen Stock, but this is an important conversation, we're going to let her speak. Um, and she spoke and she got a standing ovation and there were other people who were very upset, etc. But So I think institutions not being cowed by the fear of cancellation or the fear of being boycotted, that sort of thing, people standing up and saying, no, uh, dialogue is important. Um, you know, respectful dialogue is important and it doesn't mean that, that um, something um, sort of terrible is happening because there's a conversation going on which some people disagree with. So that, that can also be, um, I think that's important too, that we don't, that all our institutions don't cave to cancellation in general. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Desert Island classics. Well, speaking of Desert Island, I would have to say the Odyssey would be there. Um, it's 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 not very interesting. It's sort of the things you would imagine, like Shakespeare, the Odyssey, um, 
Actually, for me too, it would be. Um, I mean, how many can I take? Is it? The rules are you're not allowed to say for me. Yeah, because those are givens. Those are givens. Yeah, I, I, I would say Rosemary Sutcliffe. Rosemary Sutcliffe, her novels, historical novels for children, just are very dear to me. I think I would, I would want those. Um, uh, I think if I, if I had a gun to my head and I had to choose between um, Greek and Latin, I'd, I'd probably just take Greek if I really had to. It's a terrible choice to have to make. No one should be forced into that choice. That's. <laughs> It's actually quite traumatic just to think about it. But if, 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 if I really had to, I would probably take Herodotus and Homer um, <laughs> rather, than, rather than Virgil and Tacitus. But, you know, yeah. It's, it's, a, hard, it's a hard question. I, we could be here all night with me <laughs> processing that question. I don't know if that's a helpful one for everyone to have to listen to. I'm just laughing because I think if someone, if you were about to be forced onto a desert island and someone asked you to make that choice, you would take so long that eventually they would just leave you. They would give up. <laughs> or they, they would, would they might shoot me. They might just sh shoot me on the spot. Yeah. Do you want to read something from the ancient world, the Middle Ages? Do you want to read something in English? Do you want to read English? Do you want to read... Where do you start your kids? I mean, I, I've been reading Narnia to them quite early on. Narnia is excellent, I would say, the Chronicles of Narnia. The Lord of the Rings is incredible. I'd say that's a modern-day classic. I think it will stand the test of time. Um, I mean, I could go on. I, I, I think good, good children's books are a good place to start. So I would say, I mentioned Rosemary Sutcliffe. I think she's very good. Um, C.S. Lewis's books are good. She does, yeah, Rosemary Sutcliffe writes her own original stories and she also writes retellings of Beowulf and um, various myths and legends, which are really, really wonderful. Yeah, actually, the, the, the myths and legends uh, of, of Greece and, and Northern Europe, the Norse myths, they, they can be a good, good place to start. Um, something that invites people into, you know, to imagine a world different to their own. George MacDonald's um, The Princess and the Goblin, Princess and Curdie, those are really good books, I think, for children. And just fairy tales, the traditional fairy tales, I think, are, are, are good to, to engage with. Um, for an adult who hasn't read, um, who hasn't read a lot of, of this sort of thing and would be interested to some, um, yeah, it's, you know, everyone's going to be drawn to different things. Um, you know, some of the books are about war, some are not, some are about love. Some are, so there's all, all different things. Um, I mean, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress is actually an amazing book. Um, obviously, it's a very Christian book. Not everyone might want to read such an overtly Christian book. But his writing is second to none. He's incredible. Robert Louis Stevenson thought he was the, the most... The best writer of vivid action and dialogue in, in the English language, Robert Louis Stevenson, um, who is actually a good place to start himself. Treasure Island. Treasure Island is pretty much like the perfect book, in a way. Um, uh, for, it just, yeah, sprang forth fully formed. Uh, and then Kidnapped by, by Stevenson is very good. So Stevenson, his books for, for children, like Treasure Island, are of such quality that they're they're ageless and timeless. Um, so Stevenson is a is a very good, he's a good place to go. 
that, that, that sort of 19th century prose is just so, it was just such a wonderful time for, for prose um, writing. I think he's, he's excellent. Um, I don't know. I'm just going to talk about writers. I don't know. That's a, that's a really good question, though, where to start. I, there's no wrong place to start. There's no wrong place to start. It's, there's no, like I said with the Red Badge of Courage, there's no harm in, in finding one that's kind of famous but a bit shorter. There's no, no harm in that at all. Some of the best books are short. Um, uh, so it, it's okay to, to, and it's okay to try something and then put it aside and you know, try something different. Don't be demoralized if the first one you try, it doesn't, you don't really finish. It's okay, you can always try a different, you can try listening instead of reading. Um, I, I don't want to really prescribe it. You should read this book first. It's, there's, too, there's too many good ones. Yes, that, yeah, Dawn's advising, if you're interested in, in breaking into Shakespeare, maybe see it performed, watch a film of it or a play, rather than trying to read it as your first experience. Yeah, my first experience was watching films of Shakespeare, only understanding a little bit of it, but being utterly captivated, then going away and reading it. And then I, you know, I think watching it was, was important to begin with, yeah. Peter was four when that happened. <laughs> I, was old, I was older than that. All right. We we should put people out of their misery here. No, not at all. Thank you, Peter. Thank you.